Today's reading comes from 1 Timothy 5, verse 1, through chapter 6, verse 2. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, and all purity. Honor widows who are truly widows, but if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow left all alone has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even when she lives. Command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work, but refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened, so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the labor deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sin of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters may not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Bree. Let's pray together. Father, um, what an honor it is to be invited into a relationship with you. <laughs> what an honor to be adopted into your family and to be called your sons and daughters. What an honor it is to be given access into your presence anytime, anywhere, for any reason whatsoever. Um, you made all this possible, Father, by taking on our shame. On the cross, you exchanged your honor for our dishonor. 
You exchanged your righteousness for our unrighteousness. You exchanged your sinlessness for our sinfulness. And so we come to say thank you. We come to thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus Christ. And we come to worship you. We come to say holy is the land. And we come to lay down all that we have and all that we are. And bring it before you this morning and fall on our faces and say, use us, Father, as you see fit. Bring yourself glory and honor through our lives, we pray. In the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen, amen. What a great passage. Boy, if you're a young widow, right? I mean, idler, busybody, gossip, anyway. Uh, we're going to be talking a little bit about honor and shame this morning. It's a, it's a word that I've been uh, sort of pondering and praying over all week. Uh, it's, it's, it's something that we are uh, rather unfamiliar with as Western Christians. Honor and shame is, is something that's marked a human society for, gosh, thousands of years. Really, really is actually the dominant paradigm uh, in the world today. You heard that word honor pop up a few times uh, in the passage, and it's really tough to overstate its importance. Um, it's, it's far more important for most societies to be honorable than it is to be right or, or to be innocent. And again, that's sort of a little bit of a strange way of thinking uh, to our minds. I remember the first time I encountered this, I was in college. Uh, we had gone on a, on a mission trip to Chicago. We were in southwest Chicago in a little community there called Alaveita, a little uh, poor Latino community that was in the midst of Lawndale, which is this much larger but still predominantly poor black uh, community. And we were helping a local church minister to some former gang members um, who are now part of their youth group. And part of that experience was having dinner with one of the families in the church that night. Now, due to some miscommunication, too many of us actually showed up at one of the homes. And as a result, the host did not have enough food. Now, without missing a beat, that family went without in order to provide for us their guests. Now, I noticed that, and I, I asked the pastor if I could, you know, share my food with the family. He told me that if I really wanted to honor them, I would eat everything on my plate. That, that, that to do what was right in my mind would actually bring shame upon the family. And later on, he pulled me aside and explained the dynamics of honor and shame in his culture, and I was fascinated. I was fascinated. He pointed me to all the students that they helped from the local gangs. And, and usually the only way that the local gangs would actually release someone um, was through a ritual beating that, that, would, that was so brutal and intense, it, it, would, it would often kill the person because of the dishonor and the shame that would bring onto the gang to have people leaving the gang, for, for people wanting out. But if you gave your life to Jesus, the gangs actually did not consider that a dishonor because of the respect that they had for the name of Jesus and the respect they had for the ministry of that local church. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, powerful, powerful stuff. Now, as a side note, my younger brother was also on the trip. He ended up at that same dinner, and out of the desire to connect with the family, he was trying out his high school Spanish. Not a great idea. In fact, he was so bad at it, the pastor asked him to stop because of how shameful it was, his behavior. Anyway, it's pretty funny. Something we did not let him forget the rest of the trip, by the way. All right, but like I said, like I said earlier, honor, shame, that dynamic is present. Um, it's the dominant cultural paradigm for, again, most of human history and, frankly, most of the rest of the world today. People that live in honor, shame uh, contexts place a privilege on relationships. They'll do just about anything to protect the honor of the family or the clan or the tribe, even things a Westerner like ourselves might consider wrong or unjust. You see, Western culture is dominated by a guilt-innocence mindset where each individual is judged 
based generally upon these, these agreed upon standards of right and wrong in society. If you break those standards, you might lose a relationship. And on some level in our society, that's okay. That's sort of the cost, right, of, of, of living and, and, and moving in our society. But in non-Western cultures, that is not okay. The loss of a relationship is the ultimate wrong. It's worse than death in most cases. And so people go to great lengths, again, to guard their relationships. That's why they may not always be as honest as you would like them to be. That's why they may not always tell you the whole truth. Those kinds of things. Because the honor of the family and the honor of the community is at stake. And there's tremendous pressure to conform to that. Now guess what? You see this dynamic in the Bible. You see it throughout the Bible. Alright, the ancient Hebrews, the nation of Israel, the early church, this was the water that they swam in, okay? It's how they operated and understood the world around them. For example, you might remember in the story of Adam and Eve, when they were first created in chapter 2, the Bible says they were naked and unashamed before the Lord. Now that's not just a throwaway verse, right? It illustrates how deeply embedded honor and shame was from the very beginning. And after they fall into sin, the first thing they do, what? is they cover their nakedness and they hide from God because of their shame. Yes, they were guilty. Yes, they had transgressed the law of God. Yes, they had done something wrong. And yes, they felt bad about what they had done. But more importantly, they felt bad about who they had become. And that's what shame does to a person. right? Guilt is feeling bad about what you've done. Shame is much deeper. It's about feeling bad about who you are. All right? Interestingly enough, the very first question that God asks Adam and Eve after they sin is not, what did you do? Or why did you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil like I told you not to? That's not the question that God asks. God knew what had happened, of course. He does get to those questions, but his very first question is, where are you? Where are you? Again, in honor-shame cultures, the relationship is what's most important, and God doesn't want Adam and Eve hiding from him. He wants to remain in relationship with them. And now he's going to deal with their sin, of course. They're not going to get a pass. They get exiled from the garden. They will be sentenced to lives of hard labor. They'll eventually die. The curse they bring on themselves is very real. But God's primary concern here has to do with their shame. No matter where they go from here, God is going to be with them. No matter how much their sin piles up from this point forward, God will not abandon them. God loves them, and he loves us with an everlasting love. Amen? A love that covers our sin and our shame. At the end of Genesis chapter 3, interestingly enough, right before they're exiled from the garden, there's another little verse that often gets overlooked. It talks about God taking the skins of animals and making clothes for Adam and Eve. Now, why would God do such a thing? He wants to cover their nakedness and shame as they head out into the world. And isn't that what Jesus does for us? Does he not clothe us with his robes of righteousness? Does he not clothe us with his love and his grace and cover our sin? Friends, this is what God desires for us. He, he desires our obedience not because he's after outward compliance with all the rules and the regulations, but because it is through our faithful obedience that we bring honor to his name and honor to his family and honor to his people. Abraham honored God and was blessed. Moses honored God and was blessed. David honored God and was blessed. Over and over again, we see this dynamic play itself out throughout the scriptures. The people of God seek to honor God and God honors them in return. When the people of God set out to shame God, even if, it, even if they're trying to maintain some sort of semblance of outward purity and perfection, they bring shame upon themselves. All right, And 
Again, we're going to see this play out in Paul's letter to Timothy as well. So if you've got your Bibles or Bible apps, go ahead and open up to 1 Timothy chapter 5, the scripture that Bree just read for us. And I, I want you to listen to how Paul addresses Timothy and, and teaches him how to honor the family. Honor the family. That's where he starts. And most of, most of us probably remember the fifth commandment, right? We remember honor your father and mother, right? That's what he's talking about here. Exodus chapter 20, verse 12. It's a governing dynamic for Paul, not just in the nuclear family or the extended family or with our blood relatives, but with the intergenerational family we call the church. So Paul says this. He says, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. How do we honor one another in the church? We treat each other like family. We remember that we've been adopted into God's family. And by the grace of God, we are now brothers and sisters, fathers and mothers, grandmothers and grandfathers. And each person sitting around us is someone that Jesus gave his life for. And so that they are worthy of love and honor and respect. And it's why we cannot and, and should not walk away from each other when things get hard, right? Because that's like walking out on your own family. Who does that? No one, right? It's why we, we do all we can to gather together, right, on a, on a regular basis. Why? It's not because God's taking attendance. It's because it's good to gather with your family. Amen? Is it not good to gather with your family? Okay, it is good to gather with your family. Yeah, I mean, absolutely, right? And, and this is what it's all about. It's to bring joy to our heart. Church is not just an event that we come to. It's not just a TED Talk with a little music thrown in. It's why the online experience, while it's good for those who may be homebound for some reason or on vacation or, or, or something like that, it's not enough. It's not enough. It doesn't replace the face-to-face -face interactions that we need to have with one another. You can't, you can't encourage one another from a distance. You got to get up close. You got to get up personal. You got to get into each other's lives. And so, if we're going to bless, if we're going to honor, if we're going to treat each other with the respect, right, that each one of us deserves as a child of God, as a brother and sister in Christ, then, then we have to come together, friends. We got to gather together. We got to be together as the family. Amen? Yeah. It's why we place such a value on being intergenerational here at Pepsi. It's why our worship experience changes week over week over week. It's why we, we love these intergenerational interactions we have at events like a chili cook-off or other things, right? Because we love getting people together across age differences, across social differences, across economic differences, and coming together to bless one another and to honor one another. And we lay aside our personal preferences in those scenarios. We want to bless each other by putting others' needs before our own. We want to do all we can to encourage one another by assuming the best of one another and praying for one another and supporting each other when times get tough, like when you go through cancer. That's what being the church is all about. That's what it means to honor the family, friends. Now, we also want to pay particular attention to those in our midst who do not have a family, who do not have a family. And this, this relates to widows and uh, of course, in Paul's day, that's what he's talking about to Timothy. There was clearly an issue with widows in the, in the Ephesian church, right? But it also relates to widows, widowers, divorcees, singles in our midst, orphans, those who may feel all alone. 
Again, for the church in Ephesus, their focus was on widows because they were often left destitute at the death of their husbands. That's what happened in that culture. They were sort of kicked to the curb and left on their own. And Paul wants Timothy to pay particular attention to them so that they get the care that they need. Listen to how he describes it again in 1 Timothy 5, verses 3 through 8, and then jumping down to 16. He says, Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first show, learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. But she who is truly a widow, left all alone, she has set her heart on, hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well so that they may be without reproach or without shame. For if anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially for members of his own household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. But if any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them so the church will not be burdened, so that it may care for those who are truly widows, those who are alone. Throughout the Old and New Testaments, God makes it clear to his people that they are to care for the widows and the orphans. In fact, he calls himself a father to the fatherless and a defender of widows. This is who God is, and then by extension, it's who his people are to be as well. In fact, it's one of the unique qualities that really has made up the church historically. From the beginning, right, it's what set them apart from the pagan culture that surrounded them. When a woman lost her husband in the first century, she lost her social significance. It was like she disappeared off the, off the radar screen of the community. She was left all alone, no way to make a living, no way to provide for herself outside of potentially selling her body, all right? But the early church excelled at taking care of the widows, and Paul goes into great detail here, you know, with, about how the church that Timothy leads is to honor and care for the widows in their midst, right? First and foremost, Timothy said, is to challenge their own family to take care of them, challenge the children, the grandchildren to take care of their own, to give a return to their parents who gave so much to raise them and to bring them into the world. And when they do this, they honor not only their parents, but God himself. In fact, Paul says, if you don't take care of your own family, you are denying the faith and you're worse than an unbeliever. Second Timothy is to make sure the church takes on the burden of caring for those widows who don't have family. He's to make sure that they are welcome into fellowship and shown special care and hospitality, supported financially. And of course, the widows have a responsibility here as well. They're not just to take this care for granted. They're not to become lazy and self-indulgent or gossips or busybodies or idlers. They are to devote themselves to prayer and to service to their church family. And as both parties commit themselves to this way of life, they're going to be above reproach. That means they're going to be without shame. Now you think about how that works itself out in our context. Right? We live in a world of graduated care facilities and senior living centers, and it's tempting to assume that we don't have to care for our families because we can pay someone else to do it. And a lot of the world operates that way. I remember when my grandmother went into her graduated care facility when she was struggling with dementia. And my family, we would go visit her almost every day. We got to know a lot of the residents. And it was amazing to me how many of those residents never saw their children. Never saw their grandchildren. All right? Friends, that is not how it's supposed to work in the family of God. Amen? We care for each other. Or I think about the divorcees and the singles in our midst. Right? And so often they feel left out and lonely because so much of even the church's focus is on the family. And our programming assumes on some level that both parents are in the home or is wrapped around our children. But Paul is clearly challenging Timothy here, as well as Pepsi, to open our hearts to those who don't have family in our midst. 
Invite people out to coffee. Include them in our small groups. Make space for them in our lives to be with them and to love them and to care with for them and to provide for them. Honor, you see, friends, comes from a sense of belonging, of being accepted, of being welcomed, of being part of something bigger than yourself. And shame, shame comes from isolation. Shame comes from feeling all alone. And the Bible is clear. It's not good for us to be alone. Amen? All right, so we have to open our hearts and open our lives to one another. I love how James 1.27 puts it. It says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. God calls us to especially honor those without family, friends. We honor those in the family. We honor those without family. Thirdly, we honor those who lead the family. We honor the elders, the deacons, the pastors, the staff that lead our family. Right? 1 Timothy 5, 17-22, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. I guess that's what I do here every Sunday morning, right? Tread out the grain. Come on, right? Um, the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. And as for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Here Paul is talking about how we treat our leadership as a church, how we pay them. How we pray for them, how we discipline them, how we appoint them. He says something similar to the Thessalonian Christians as well. So this isn't just advice he gives to Timothy. To the Thessalonians, he says, Dear brothers and sisters, honor those who are your leaders in the Lord's work. They work hard among you and give you spiritual guidance. Show them great respect and wholehearted love because of their work. Now why is Paul so concerned with how the church treats her leaders? What, what does it mean to have leaders uh, that, that are worthy of double honor? It means, we, it means we honor the unique challenges that come with leadership. Anybody who leads in any capacity, in any sphere of life, knows there are unique challenges that come with that. It's not easy all the time. It's certainly not easy to be a leader in our world today, and that's true in ministry. This is not an easy call. You don't get into it because it's easy, right? As I shared with you last week, almost 40% of pastors have, over the last two or three years since COVID, expressed a desire to quit the ministry because of how difficult it is. Almost 80% of pastors believe that serving in ministry has had a negative impact on their families. Many pastors around the country struggle financially because the church is not able or unwilling to pay them enough. I remember this was an issue in our first church. There was a small, struggling church in, you know, an economically depressed area of Mobile, Alabama, and I was fresh out of seminary with no pastoral experience, and my wife and I did our best that first year to live on what they paid us, but it just wasn't possible. And so I went to the elders, and I showed them my personal budget. I let them know what we needed to live, and I asked them to do what they could to take care of my family so I could be free to do the work of ministry that they had called me to, and thankfully they responded. On the flip side, we may all know pastors who take advantage of their position, and they make inordinate amount of money, live in mansions, and have his and her Mercedes, or whatever it might be. That's certainly not what Paul's talking about here. They're not worthy of triple or quadruple or quintuple honor, only double honor, right? Do the math, right? And it's not simply about honoring those who serve in leadership, right? Not just financially, but, it, but also in how we treat them. We live in a world where leaders are subjected to all kinds of abuse and harsh critique, right? All kinds of shame and personal attack. 
I don't care, again, whether you're a leader in the church or in the community at large. It's brutal. And Paul calls us to a different way, the way of honor, the way of blessing, the way of respect. We're called to take care of each other by not tearing each other down. Amen? I get some of your emails, so maybe you don't really believe that. I don't know, all right? <laughs> by the way, many of you have asked how we take care of our staff here at Pepsi, and it's a great question. I love that. It shows your heart to honor those who've called to serve, uh, those whom God has called to serve our family. I want you to know that we benchmark every position in this church according to different factors like cost of living and education and experience and region of the country, and we, we establish a range for that position. Then we do our best to keep every single staff member in the top 25% of that range. And the more our church grows, the more those ranges grow with it, and we continue to bless our staff along the way. That's my commitment to you as the senior pastor here at Pepsi and as the one who is responsible for making sure our staff are honored and blessed. I think that's one of the reasons why we have such a long-tenured group, amen? We really are blessed by our staff, okay? Can we, can we thank God for our staff? Yeah, they're awesome. They really are. Most of them aren't here, so they won't hear your clapping, but that's okay, right? They're off doing other things, but whatever, it's good. Uh, finally, we honor those outside the family. So you honor the family, you honor those who don't have family, you honor those who lead the family, and then finally, Paul says, we honor those outside the family. And here, Paul uses this example of slaves and masters, and I know it's a really hard one for us. He could have chosen any number of other social relationships to make his point, but this is a common one in his day. 1 Timothy 6, 1 and 2, all slaves should, so, should show full respect for their masters so they will not bring shame upon the name of God and his teaching. If the masters are believers, there is no excuse for being disrespectful. Those slaves should work all the harder because their efforts are helping other believers who are well loved. Now I know this advice, again, sounds anathema to us. Slavery is a great evil, and too often in her history the church has been complicit in participating in it or supporting it. And one might wonder why the biblical authors like Paul did not call for its outright abolishment. Well, here again, we have to remember the Bible was not written, it was written for us, but it was not written to us. Paul's writing to Timothy during a time when slavery was normative. In fact, some scholars estimate that up to one-third of the people living in the Roman Empire were slaves. That's 50 to 60 million people. It was part of the sinful, broken economic system that made up the world at the time, all right? And just as God does today, he works through our sinful, broken economic, social, and political systems to bring about his will and his way. So I don't care what system you believe in, whether it's capitalism or socialism or communism or some other kind of ism, all of them are sinful and broken because the people who created them in the first place are sinful and broken. Amen? Like that, that's just life. That's just how it works in this world. We don't place our trust in a system. We place our trust in Jesus Christ. And as we place our trust in Christ, guess what? We, we now belong to a different system called the kingdom of God. And so our citizenship then transcends whatever condition we may find ourselves in in this world, which is why Paul can offer this advice to slaves. He knows their identity is not defined by their economic status in this world. At the same time, Paul's also concerned about social justice, and he sets out principles throughout his letters that undermine the system of slavery and eventually will lead to its abolition. He's already called slave traders evil earlier in this letter. In his letter to the Ephesians and the Colossians, he clearly labels slavery a breach of the gospel. You know, in places like Galatians 3.28, he says there is no 
Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free. There is no male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. That was so radical in his day and age, I can't even tell you, right? I mean, that would have been baffling to people to see those words, right? And in Philemon chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, and by the way, Philemon was part of the Ephesian church where Timothy was pastor. He calls Philemon to no longer treat Onesimus as a slave, but as a beloved brother in the Lord. So the gospel places a stake in the heart of slavery because Jesus came to deliver those enslaved to sin. And because Jesus came to deliver us from our own slavery, we seek to deliver those still enslaved in his name. And so for Christians living in the Greco-Roman Empire, it meant that Christian slaves should seek the deliverance of their masters. That they should live and work and, and operate in such a way that their masters would look at them and consider how powerful the gospel of Jesus Christ is. Right? That their lives should be an example to that, right? And for us Christians living in the 21st century world, it means seeking the deliverance of those that we work with or those that we work for or those that we work among. It means eliminating all economic and social distinctions in the church. It means leveling the playing field. That's, that's really what it's all about. That's how we honor those outside the family. That's how we honor those inside the family. And that brings me to my final point. And with that, I'll ask the worship team to come back up. And our kids may be coming in to join us as well for our final song. And that is, that is how, how then do we honor one another at Pepsi? How, how do we do this? What, what does it actually look like? Well, listen to how Paul describes it to the Roman Christians in Romans chapter 12, verse 10, he says, Let love one another with brotherly affection and outdo one another in showing honor. Can you imagine what a church would, what your church experience would be like if every single one of us sought to outdo the other in honor? Can you imagine how powerful that would be? How awesome that would be? Can you imagine like walking into church knowing, like, I've got to like ramp up today because all these people are going to try and honor me and I want to like outdo them in, in honoring them. So how am I going to do that? Imagine walking into worship on a Sunday morning and rather than walking in sort of going, okay, we'll see how this whole thing goes. You walk in and you're like, man, I am, these guys up here, how do I honor them by singing? How do I honor them by participating? How do I honor God by being open to what he wants to tell me this morning? Friends, this is how we honor one another. When there's opportunities to serve, right? Sign me up. I'm in. Like, I'll sacrifice. To, I'll do whatever it takes because I want to honor my brothers and sisters in Christ. I want to honor the family of God. You're running a small group and you have the opportunity to add someone to your small group, particularly if they're widowed, if they're divorced, if they're single. You say, yes, absolutely, come on in because we want you to feel like you belong and we know that honoring one another means having a sense of belonging to something bigger than yourself, feeling like you've got the support of a family, friends. That's what it is. Honor creates a sense of belonging where it's safe to be ourselves. Honor it creates the conditions under which we are able to confess our sins and, and, and offer forgiveness and come together and grow in our relationship with God. Honor builds this sort of radically inclusive community where all these social and economic and, 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 and political and ethnic distinctions break down, right? That's what honor does. And that's what God desires for us. He desires us to be a people of honor, a people who will honor the family, a people that will honor those without family, a people that will honor those who lead the family, and a people that will honor those outside the family. As we do these things, as we engage in this way of life, guess what? We honor our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks that you give us this opportunity to honor 
one another. And it's something that really flows from our relationship with you. It can only flow from our relationship with you. You honored us by sending your only son, Jesus Christ, into the world to cover our shame, to literally die a death, God, that we deserve in order to restore a right relationship with you, God. You're still looking for those who are hiding themselves. You're still looking for those who are trying to cover themselves because they're naked and ashamed. And God, we we desire to respond to that. We want to say yes to you. We want to welcome you into our hearts, into our lives, and then we want to do the same for those around us. So God, I just pray that you would help us to become the people of honor that you've called us to be people that would honor Jesus Christ with the way that we live, the way that we speak, the way that we act, the way that we relate to each other and to the world around us. We know that as we do that, God, you're going to do amazing things in and through us, and we give you thanks for that. And we pray these things in your name and all God's people said, amen. Let's stand and sing our final song. Today.